Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Agenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 26th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This Wisdom of Solomon series isn't getting the number of downloads I would I would have hoped for, but that's not going to steer me off of it. We are going to present the entire Wisdom of Solomon in a commentary. The Wisdom of Solomon is timeless, even if our fellow identity Christians don't quite realize its value. Here this evening, its portrayal of the wicked is probably much more relevant today than when it was written. But like Solomon said elsewhere, there is nothing new under the sun. In our last presentation of this commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, we already began to introduce the second chapter of the work and discussed aspects of its opening verses as they provide a conclusion to ideas which were introduced in chapter 1, as well as an introduction to what is described throughout this chapter. I had also presented and briefly discussed this second chapter of the Wisdom of Solomon in part 45 of my commentary on the Gospel of John, which was titled Gods and Emperors. That is because this chapter as a whole may be seen as a messianic prophecy. In fact, I'm sure it is. And this first half draws a portrait of the wicked, which also very well describes the attitudes and behavior of the men who had opposed Christ during the time of his ministry, and also mentions some of the things for which Christ had rebuked them some of the attitudes which they had. Then later, then the later half of this chapter draws a portrait of a just man whom the wicked would persecute for his righteousness. And that also very well describes Christ himself. Being wrapped in passages which discuss death and resurrection at the beginning of the chapter, and professing that God created man to be immortal at the end of the chapter, it is manifest that the whole of this chapter is indeed a messianic prophecy. So, that being said, because they are an important introduction to the overall content of this second chapter, we will repeat and offer further commentary on those first two verses. Wisdom chapter 2, verse 1. For the ungodly said, reasoning within themselves, but not aright, our life is short and tedious, and in death, in the death of a man, there is no remedy. Neither was there any man known to have returned from the grave. Like the irony and sarcasm which is found in Ecclesiastes, where everything is declared to be vanity. Here the ungodly are depicted as having believed or as believing that same thing. But here their thoughts are declared to be wrong before they are described where in Ecclesiastes it is not declared until the very end of the last chapter of the work that there is indeed a God who shall judge and reward the works of men, both the good and the evil. Without God there is no remedy for death. But then again, God himself offers no remedy to the godless. In the later portion of this chapter, the just man, who knows that he is of God and acts accordingly, has life even in his condemnation at the hands of the wicked, as the man which God has created is indeed immortal. So the impious men had said, but not aright, or rather incorrectly, 
that in the death of a man there is no remedy. Neither was there any man known to have returned from the grave. That word for grave is actually Hades, which in both Old Testament and New was seen as an underworld abode of the dead. Ancient pagan literature portrays men visiting that abode and speaking with the dead, such as Odysseus in the Odyssey of Homer. Likewise, in scripture, a necromancer was able to consult with the deceased Samuel on behalf of Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, other ancient myths have men returning from Hades, such as the Mesopotamian legends of Tammuz and Ishtar, or the title character of Euripides' Alcestis. But where the author of Wisdom wrote, neither was there any man known to have returned from the grave, he is rejecting those myths. Now, if Solomon actually wrote this, which we believe he did, but which we will probably never prove conclusively, if he wrote this, then Euripides' Alcestis wasn't written yet, but the legend of Tammuz and Ishtar is very, very old, long predating the time of David and Solomon. The ancient writers of scripture certainly knew of them, as the pagan idol Tammuz, who was a consort of Ishtar, is actually mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 8. Women crying for Tammuz. In 1 Peter chapters 3 and 4, Christ himself is described as having preached the gospel to the dead in Hades as they were, at that time, reconciled with God. So the proverbial gates of hell were smashed. Therefore, we shall see that for the just man, who is described at the end of this chapter, there certainly is a remedy for death and a return from Hades where we learn that he is rewarded for his good works because God created man to be immortal. And therefore, when man passes from this world, he only appears to die. When actually, as we see in the first verse of chapter 3 of this book, the souls of the righteous are in the hands of God, and there no torment shall touch them. The righteous are those whom Yahweh God considers to be righteous, not whom men perceive to be righteous. As we read in Isaiah chapter 45, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, Seek ye me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. He declares who is righteous and who isn't. Paul of Tarsus, speaking of the Adamic creation which was made subject to vanity, invoked a theme from Ecclesiastes, where he had spoken of that same hope of immortality and wrote in Romans chapter 8, For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who had subjected the same in hope. Because the creation itself shall also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Speaking of the Adamic man as a creation. Not speaking of trees and birds and beasts and niggers and squat monsters, and taco goblins. This subjection of the creation to vanity is evident 
in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where Solomon had said, I have seen the travail which God has given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. While the sin of Adam brought death into the world, that too was known beforehand by God and was part of his plan from the beginning as Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now to discuss one other aspect of the words put into the mouths of the impious here, that in the death of a man there is no remedy. Neither was there any man known to have returned from the grave. Admittedly, there is no indefinite article in Greek, and therefore it may have been read, in the death of man there is no remedy. But nevertheless, the author introduces the belief that there very well is a remedy in the death of men and a return from the grave, or Hades, because they spoke not rightly. It is significant that he used this concept to introduce this contrast between the wicked and the righteous and the resulting declaration that the righteous do have a promise of immortality. The word for ungodly is not found in the text here. Rather, in, chapter, in, in verse 1 of chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, rather, the pronoun refers back to the ungodly men who were described in the last verse of chapter 1, along with the forms of the verbs. As we have also explained previously, the word for ungodly, which is asebes, we explained this when we discussed that last verse of chapter 1 in our last presentation. Asebes does not necessarily describe those who are without God, but merely those who are impious, or literally without reverence for God, whether or not they are of God. Now, the wisdom of Solomon rightly attributes to these impious men, a belief commonly found among modern humanists, that men are born by chance and for no particular purpose. And then the seeming transientness or vanity of man is also described in verse 2. For we are born at all adventure, and we shall be hereafter as though we had never been. For the breath in our nostrils is a smoke, is as smoke, and a little spark in the moving of our heart. Interestingly, the word for born here is ginomahi, to be or to become, and refers to the act of being born when it is used of people in this and similar contexts. But the King James Version did not translate the word in that same manner in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 18, where the Christogenian New Testament has, even now many antichrists have been born. They translated the word in that manner here, but not there. Or perhaps modern Christians would better understand the nature of the Jews if they had translated it correctly there. Where the King James Version has here, and a little spark in the moving of our heart, and of course I'm referring to the King James Apocrypha when I say King James Version throughout the Wisdom of Solomon. The translation ignores the phrase, hologos, which is a word or a thought, the word or the thought being accompanied by a definite article. It is often a matter, logos, is a matter in the Psalms and in Proverbs, but it is, it, it may also be translated as reasoning or 
reckoning. Here we would translate the clause to say, and the matter is a little spark in the moving of our heart. The word was used in a similar context in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 to refer to a thought or matter in the heart, although it is thing in the King James New Testament. In, I'm sorry, in the King James Version of Ecclesiastes in chapter 5, verse 2. Here we should note again that Brenton, Sir Francis Brenton, in his Septuagint, did not actually translate the wisdom of Solomon from Greek. I don't know what happened with Brenton. Most of the, um, everything I've seen of the standard Old Testament Bible books were translations from the Greek by Brenton, evidently. But the apocryphal books, and I'm not sure if all of them are like this, but this Wisdom of Solomon and several others are merely copies of the King James Apocrypha. So perhaps, and I don't know the truth behind this, but perhaps Brenton didn't get a chance to finish his Septuagint, and perhaps the publishers merely added the King James Apocrypha facing the, the corresponding Greek columns in the pages of Brenton's Septuagint because Brenton followed the King James Version word for word, even when it was wrong, even when the translation was bad. And I have many examples of that. The translation of the Septuagint by Charles Thompson, who was actually a, um, I believe he was a politician and, and perhaps the secretary of the Continental Congress when the American colonies were declaring their independence from Britain. But he made his own Septuagint translation. However, his translation does not include the books of the Apocrypha, at least not the copy I have here. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where Solomon was employing sarcasm, there is the same cynical attitude towards life after death, where he had also written, Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? And of course, I'm commenting on the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 2, in case anybody got lost with all of my digressions, I apologize. The same attitude towards death, the death of a man, is summarized in Isaiah chapter 22, a passage which Paul had cited in his first epistle to the Corinthians, where sinful men are depicted as saying, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. But the vanity of man is also declared in Isaiah chapter 40, in a passage which Peter had cited in his first epistle, where Isaiah also alludes to the hope of life which is in God through a prophecy of the gospel. And it says, And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. The voice said, cry, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and this is what Peter had cited. All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the spirit of Yahweh blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but a word of our God shall stand forever. O Zion, that bringeth good tidings, and this is right here, a prophecy of the gospel. O Zion, that bringeth good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringeth good tidings, 
Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. In that passage of Isaiah, the gospel of Christ prophesied is presented as the remedy for the vanity of man. The attitude of the impious is that men are born by chance, as the Greek word autoskedios is interpreted here. But that is not true. As David professed, once again citing the 71st Psalm, which he had written for Solomon, at least according to the Septuagint. For thou art my hope, O Yahweh God. Thou art my trust from my youth. By thee have I been holden up from the womb. Thou art he that took me out of my mother's bowels. My praise shall be continually of thee. In John chapter 9, the man who was born blind from birth was born so for the glory of God so that he could be healed by Christ after spending a good portion of his life in blindness. Paul of Tarsus understood that the course of his own life, as well as that of others, was set before he was born. As he said in the opening chapter of his epistle to the Galatians, that it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. In his epistle to the Romans, Paul wrote in chapter 9, where he was speaking of Jacob and Esau. For the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calls. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Likewise, we read in Jeremiah chapter 1, where the word of Yahweh said to the prophet, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. All these passages prove that we are not born by chance, that when we are born, Yahweh our God already has a plan for us. He already knows what path in life we are going to take. In the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 49, we read where it is speaking of Jacob, and it says, The Lord has called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother, he has mentioned my name. And now, a little further on, and now saith Yahweh that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. My God shall be my strength. That's going to play into another theme here, which is presented in this chapter. The first person pronouns, which we see in this passage of Isaiah, refer to Jacob, but they also refer to the children of Israel collectively. And therefore, all of the children of Israel share in that same hope, which is expressed in those words. So, once they fulfill their destiny and choose to be obedient to their God, serving him through their obedience, then he shall be their strength something which we shall also discuss further on in this chapter of wisdom. Solomon continues to describe the vanity with which the impious consider their own lives, which being extinguished, and they're continuing from where, they, from where we left off in verse 2, for we are all born at adventure, and we shall be hereafter as though we had never been, which isn't true. For the breath in our nostrils is as smoke and a little spark in the moving of our heart. So in verse 3, which being extinguished, when that spark is extinguished, our body shall be turned into ashes and our spirit shall vanish as the soft air. 
The word for spirit here is pneuma, which is also often breath in some contexts or wind in others. However, the word for breath in verse 2 is pnoe, P-N-O-A, P-N-O-A-T-A, the Greek verb that is sort of a hybrid between the A and the E, in my opinion. Pnoe, not pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. And pnoe in the Greek scriptures, in the Septuagint, is also the word found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where we read that Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And that word breath is this same word, pnoe, which is in verse 2 in this chapter. Here we have pneuma as spirit in verse 3. In Acts chapter 17, verse 25, Paul used that word pinoe, where speaking of God, he had said, he gives to all life and breath and all things. So here, pinoe refers to the transient breath of man, but in contrast, pneuma refers to the spirit. But the wordplay also reflects the nihilistic attitude of the impious which Solomon continues to describe for two more verses and from verse 4. And our name shall be forgotten in time, and no man shall have our works in remembrance, and our life shall pass away as the trace of a cloud. Actually, the Greek word is for a footprint. And shall be dispersed as a mist that is driven away with the with the beams of the sun, and overcome with the heat thereof. For our time is a very shadow that passes away, and after our end there is no returning, for it is fast sealed, so that no man cometh again. You're dead, you're not coming back, and you're gone forever, that's the attitude projected upon the ungodly or the impious by Solomon here. So in the next verses, they basically express the profession that they should have as much fun as possible. Eat, drink, be merry, screw people around, take advantage of them because they're only going to live a short time. And we see this in a revelation of the devil, that the devil knows he has but a short time. In ancient Israel, having one's name cut off or forgotten was seen as a disgrace, as we read in Joshua chapter 7. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ us around. In other words, they shall surround us and cut off our name from the earth, just like these niggers want to do today. They want to cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? Which is exactly how we should be appealing to Yahweh our God this very day. But the impious take it for granted that after their death, their name will be forgotten. However, Solomon, even while he sarcastically expresses the notion that death is better than birth, because of the trials which a man must undergo during the time of his life, nevertheless expresses the fact that a good name is better than precious ointment in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. But the reason why that is true does not become manifest until the end of that book, where it is declared that God will judge the works of men, good or evil. Now, another attitude that is projected in Ecclesiastes as a result of vanity is attributed to the impious here in wisdom. 
And in verse 6 we read, Come on, therefore, these are the impious men who are saying that when they're dead, they're gone, so they may as well enjoy themselves. And this is where they say it. Come on, therefore, let us enjoy the good things that are present, and let us speedily use the creatures like as in youth. And the translation is actually terrible, in, in my opinion. It, it's not too bad, but it's bad. The verb for use, kreomahi, has many stronger meanings in various contexts. The noun translated as creatures is actually singular and in the dative case. So the clause would better have been rendered as, let us eagerly indulge, indulge in the creation as in youth or evidently as children or adolescents are excited to experience new things. This is an elaboration on what Solomon had expressed as the result of the apparent vanity of man in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, where he said, Then I commended mirth, because a man has no better thing under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be merry, for that shall abide him. That shall abide with him of his labor the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. This same sentiment was expressed in different ways several times in the earlier chapters of Ecclesiastes. And then later, in chapter 9, Solomon repeated it once more. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepts thy works. Let thy garments always be white, and let thy head lack no ointment. And of course, the in Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote all of that sarcastically. And that's all explained in those final closing verses of that book. But for now, speaking of ointment, the wicked are portrayed as saying, let us fill ourselves with costly wine and ointments and let no flower of the spring bypass or pass by us. Ironically, it is evident that Christ himself was drinking wine, as that was the custom at dinner, while he was anointed with costly ointment just days before his death. And for that, he was accused by the devil, Judas Iscariot in the form of Judas Iscariot. But he answered that, and he said that it was being done for his burial, prophesying the fact that he would be unjustly executed by wicked men. As this chapter proceeds, the inevitable result of the impiety of these men is that they too would persecute the righteous. But rather than roses, he received a crown of thorns. And these wicked men say in verse 8, Let us crown ourselves with rosebuds before they be withered. Let none of us go out without his part of our voluptuousness. Let us leave tokens of our joyfulness. That sounds like they're gay, right? Let us read let, let us leave signs of the, our gaiety. Let us leave tokens of our joyfulness in every place. For this is our portion, and our lot is this. The Greek word, agarokias, is voluptuousness here. But it is properly arrogance. In the Septuagint Apocrypha, it is bragging in 2 Maccabees chapter 9 and insolence in 3 Maccabees chapter 2. Translating it literally, 
We would render it as arrogance here, although Liddell and Scott have it here as revelry, following the traditional King James Apocrypha interpretation. It was common for Liddell and Scott to include in their definitions the traditional interpretations of the church. However, we are not always compelled to accept them. But here, it is apparent that such an interpretation for this word as voluptuousness was influenced by the Latin Vulgate, which has luxuria, a word which means luxury, our word luxury comes from it, or extravagance or excess. With this, it, is also, it also becomes apparent that the Vulgate, the translators of the Vulgate, understood the word to be a Hebrewism or a Hebraism, that luxury was considered a form of arrogance. And with that, we agree So we would render the first clause of this verse, verse 9, to read, let not one of us be without a share of our luxury. Pride is a result of luxury. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, where it is used to describe the sin of Sodom. And it precipitates the fall of Edom in Obadiah chapter 1, verse 3, as well as the judgment on a whore of Babylon in Revelation chapter 18, verse 7. This being a Hebraism lends support to our insistence that this work was indeed translated from, from some ancient Hebrew copy. But of course, we will never be able to prove that. I can only prove, as I have in the first two portions of this commentary, that it was certainly not translated by somebody who was merely employing specialized Hellenistic terms in the fields of psychology or theology or anything else it was accused of. And we have... I pray we have exploded all of those accusations. We hope to make it evident that the wisdom of Solomon is indeed a logical sequel to the wisdom which is revealed by Solomon in Ecclesiastes. In that work, the vanity of man is lamented throughout along with Solomon's experiences with mirth and decadence, which, with which he had experimented on account of vanity, but which he also found to be vanity. In the end, however, he acknowledged that even vanity is vanity, and declared that there is indeed a God who would judge the works of men. So for that reason he wrote, in the final chapter of Ecclesiastes, in verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now here, in wisdom, Solomon attributes to the impious the belief that the life of man is vanity. And where he begins to describe the righteous and the fate of the righteous, the work actually resumes with the theme which is found in the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. The wisdom of Solomon is the result of the realization that there is indeed a greater purpose to the life of man than the vanity to which he is subjected in this world, which is the conclusion to Ecclesiastes. So here it is also explaining that for that very reason, 
Man should not partake in the vanity of the wicked, indulging themselves with their sins. That understanding that there is a greater purpose when it is presented is interwoven, what it is presented in these next two chapters, is interwoven with the meaning and purpose, which is later revealed in the gospel of Christ, as well as being a prophecy of Christ. This is one significant reason why I believe that wisdom was written by Solomon and why it is despised by the rabbis of Judaism who have gone to great lengths to discredit this work. Now Solomon discusses another aspect of impious men, that because of their arrogance or pride, they would persecute the righteous for no other reason than their righteousness. Let us oppress the poor righteous man. Let us not spare the widow, nor reverence the ancient gray hairs of the aged, or literally of an elder. David laments this same trait of the wicked, where we read in the 10th Psalm, Why standest thou afar off, O Yahweh? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble, as niggers, wicked niggers, prowl the streets, devouring old white folk, devouring old white people? The wicked, in his pride, does persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesses the covetous, whom Yahweh abhors. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. And we see the... Jewish media blessing the covetous niggers as they loot Walmart after Walmart after Target after CVS after Dollar Tree and so on and so forth. These passages are echoed in many of the things. These passages of wisdom are echoed in many of the things which Christ had said to those who opposed him when he chastised them for their own self-righteousness. Christ was speaking of the wicked priests who engrossed themselves in luxury, where he said in Matthew chapter 23, But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at the feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. One way in which the wicked priests had gained wealth was to oppress the elderly and the widows, as it says here. So did Christ tell them again in that same chapter, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore, you shall receive the greater damnation. Now, there is nothing wrong with being rich or with wealth itself if the wealth is acquired lawfully. We read in Proverbs chapter 13, Wealth gotten by vanity shall be diminished, but he that gathers by labor shall increase. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul of Tarsus describes the obligation of the rich. Charge them that are rich in this world that they not be high-minded, meaning arrogant or proud, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may hold on to eternal life. But James warned how the rich oppress the poor. First in chapter 2 of his epistle, 
where he is warning against favoring the wealthy in judgment. Hearken, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him? But you have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you. And this is what we see here in wisdom. We see these impious men saying, let us oppress the poor righteous man. Let us not spare the widow, nor reverence the elderly. So James warns, do not the rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called. There James used the same word for oppress that we see here in wisdom. Catadunastuo, a compound form of the verb dunastuo, which is to hold power or lordship. From the noun dunastia, which is the root of our English word dynasty. The verb is not common. It appears less than three dozen times in the Greek scriptures. And perhaps James had this chapter of wisdom in mind when he used it. Later, in chapter 5 of his epistle, James warns again what would become of the godless wealthy who would oppress the poor in order to maintain themselves in luxury. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud. In other words, they were purposely underpaying their employees. They were paying them like Mexican migrant workers so that they could keep more profit. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Not of the Mexicans, of course, but of the white men who were paid like Mexicans. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he does not resist you. It is a clear historical pattern that the godless, the impious, who are wealthy, use their riches to make laws for their own benefit, by which they enrich themselves even further. So by their own strength, they are able to define justice to their own advantage. As it says in Proverbs chapter 22, the rich ruleth over the poor, and the servant is borrower, is I'm sorry, and the borrower is servant to the lender. So here Solomon attributes that sentiment to the godless. Let our strength be the law of justice, for that which is feeble is found to be worth nothing. Once again, the Greek word, allegko here. Allegko appears here, where the text has, is found to be. In addition to proved or convicted, as we had spoken earlier in this commentary, in this context, it can be rendered as exposed. And we would render this final clause to say that the weak, that which is weak, is exposed as worthless. Although an alternative is that which is weak is proved to be useless. Of course, the impious are still speaking in error. Yahshua Christ refuted this sentiment in his Sermon on the Mount. And Paul of Tarsus, in chapter 12 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, where he said, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? Well, of course it still is. And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, am I, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? 
If the whole body were an eye, where is the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where is the smelling? But now has God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it has pleased him. And if they were all one member, where is the body? But now they are many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body, which seem to be more feeble, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. We recognize the need for each and every white Christian. For our comely parts have no need. But God has tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. In contrast to those sympathies, here we see on the part of the wicked, we see a full expression of the pagan concept that might makes right. Which in the early Greek philosophers and epic poets was often used to justify the rule of tyrants or the subjection of one nation by another. It was sometimes expressed in exclamations such as, Woe to the vanquished, which are found in the epic poets and in classical Roman histories. The Latin, Vi Victus, found in the writings of Livy. And it was also a subject of Plato, Socrates, and other Greek philosophers. But the Bible very frequently, although indirectly, addresses the delusion that might makes right, a term which seems to have been coined in English in the 19th century, but which actually describes this far older concept. And here in Wisdom, we certainly do see that the concept is very old, where it says, let our strength be the law of justice. It's saying might makes right. In chapter 36 of the book of Job, who had probably lived a couple of centuries before David and Solomon, we read, Behold, God is mighty and despises not any. He is mighty in strength and wisdom. He preserves not the life of the wicked, but gives right to the poor. We also see a rebuke of this attitude of might makes right in Proverbs chapter 18. The rich man's wealth is his strong city, and as a high wall in his own conceit. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, and before honor is humility. In other words, if he's arrogant, he will be humbled before he could ever achieve any honor. There was another warning in Isaiah chapter 5. And the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But Yahweh of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. The arrogant will not rule over us for long. Likewise, David, throughout the Psalms, had considered Yahweh God alone to be the strength of his people, which he declared quite frequently. Thus he wrote in the 71st Psalm, which was dedicated to Solomon, I will go in the strength of Yahweh God. I will make mention of my righteousness, even of thine only. Then in the 91st Psalm, we're in the context it is clear that the strength and righteousness of which he speaks are of God. The king's strength also loves judgment. 
thou, referring to God, does establish iniquity. Thou executest judgment and righteousness in Jacob. So Christ also refutes the concept of might makes right in the Sermon on the Mount, where he had said in part that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It amuses me that these secular white nationalists boast that might makes right, while at the same time they cry about world Jewish supremacy like they could ever overthrow it. They would only have to conceive that if they really believed that might makes right, they would only have to concede to the Jews because the Jews are mightier than them and they have no power, none whatsoever. So secular white nationalists are a joke. They're a joke. They're a laughingstock. Screw them all. They deserve the wrath that is going to come upon them when they all bend a knee to Black Lives niggers. Black Lives Matter niggers. Here where Solomon puts these words into the mouth of the unrighteous. He wrote at the beginning that the ungodly said, reasoning within themselves, but not aright. So we see that might does not make right, but only the righteousness which is found in the wisdom of God is right. The concept that might makes right is an inevitable product of humanism, and humanism prevails wherever the godless rule whereby man, without God, imagines that he can live by his own laws and his own sense of justice. Thereby, he must also concede that might makes right if perchance he is conquered and enslaved by stronger men, which is also inevitable. The act of kneeling before a man or even prostrating oneself has signified throughout history that one is subject to the will of that man. A recognition that one is under the authority of the man before whom he kneels. Today, white men are kneeling before beasts, and ultimately, they will be forced to accept the changes in law which those same beasts shall demand. When that happens, the white man will inevitably become enslaved to the beasts. But we also know that in this case, the beasts are the tools of the wealthy who assert their rule over all of us, whether it be visible or invisible, by political maneuvering behind the scenes. The only remedy for their inevitable enslavement is found in Isaiah chapter 45. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. By saying, ends of the earth, we see a reference to the children of Jacob, as the horns of Joseph were to push his people to the ends of the earth. I have sworn by myself, the word of, is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, not unto some nigger. Unto me every tongue shall swear. Don't make oaths with some nigger. Surely shall one say in Yahweh, have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall they come, shall men come. And all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. Right now, these Black Lives Matters niggers are trying to turn Christ into a nigger. It's not going to happen. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Recognizing that righteousness is in God 
and not in men or in beasts, then God will once again be our strength. But not until then. Solomon now describes the attitudes of the impious once they are able to establish their own law through might makes right. Therefore, let us lie in wait for the righteous, because he is not for our turn. I will explain that clause. And he is clean contrary to our doings. He upbraids us with our offending law and objects to our infamy, the transgressings of our education. The phrase, but he is not for our turn, is better rendered, he is hard to deal with for us, or he is intractable or unmanageable to us. The truly righteous man cannot readily be controlled or manipulated by the wicked. The phrase, he is clean contrary to our doings, may have better been rendered, he is opposed to our works. We read in the words of David in the 141st Psalm, incline not my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men that work iniquity, and let me not eat of their dainties, of their delicacies. We want no share with the works of wicked men. Later, Yahshua Christ had told his disciples that the world cannot hate you, but it hated me because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil, in the gospel, as it is recorded in the Gospel of John. The Greek word here, epiphemizo, is to object to infamy here. It is basically to utter words ominous of the event or to promise according to an omen, which in scripture is basically an imprecation, an announcement that punishment from God awaits the sinner or a prayer for such punishment, an imprecatory prayer. Later, According to Liddell and Scott, it was used to describe an allegation, to allege something, citing Plutarch, a writer of the second century AD. But we would assert that the primary meaning fits, fits the context of Old Testament scripture. The only other time that the word appears in the Septuagint is also in a context appropriate for its primary meaning, which is in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 19, where it is used to describe the curses which were pronounced for disobedience. So the final clause is better rendered. And curses the righteous man, curses the sins of our education. That word refers to education or schooling or the training of a child. The message of these first 12 verses of Wisdom Chapter 2 is profound. It describes phenomena which have manifested themselves throughout history. It is timeless and it is fully relevant to the situation of Christians in the world today ungodly and impious men tend to humanism and humanists tend to the artificial concept that might makes right rather than what is declared in the law of God. Rejecting God, they tend towards materialism. They accumulate wealth and they use their wealth as a weapon so that they can subject men to their own laws. Taking God out of education, even education has become another godless tool by which they attain their own purposes. This is the course of modern history. This is how banks and global corporations and a small number of billionaires today 
have come to steer the course of nations. Now the righteous, which are pious Christians who keep the commandments of Christ, are persecuted for doing so, rejecting racial diversity, which leads to fornication. Integration is forced onto them, and fornication is everywhere. Rejecting sodomy, the courts rule that gender is the same as sex, that discrimination against sex is immoral by their own standards, and now the acceptance of sodomy is forced everywhere. Rejecting vaccination, since it is sorcery, legislation is introduced which makes vaccination mandatory. Rejecting the vile education of the ungodly, Christian parents who seek to educate their own children are also being persecuted. True Christians are intractable to the wicked. They are not manageable. The wicked cannot manage them, cannot control them. And that is why today all formerly, formerly Christian nations are being plunged into decadence, tyranny, and are overrun with beasts so that true Christians no longer have any political power within their own nations. Perhaps this lesson is another reason why the rabbis of Judaism despise the, less, the wisdom of Solomon because they despise its education. <coughs> the rabbis of Judaism hate this book and they've done everything they can to eliminate it or to discredit it. Our next presentation in this commentary discussing the balance of Wisdom Chapter 2 shall most likely be titled Portrait of the Messiah because I do believe it is a messianic prophecy. We pray that we may present it soon. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.